Hello, friends, and welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Last episode, we spoke about the Joni Mitchell song from the late 60s entitled Both Sides Now. It's a brilliant song that highlights three different ways of looking at the same circumstance, but through different lenses. And we spoke of these three different stages of life, and more importantly, in our context, three different stages of our spiritual journey. Now, let me say that these stages and this idea is not original. I've read numerous authors and theologians that have spoken about these stages and have given each stage a name, like order, disorder, and reorder, or pre-critical thinking, critical thinking, and post-critical thinking. But for the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to talk about stages one, two, and three. Stage one in our spiritual journey is everything is simple. It makes perfect sense. Belief actually comes easy. But in stage two, belief gets very hard, if not impossible. What used to seem simple is now actually really complex. What was wonderful is now like terrible. And then there's stage three, where in the words of Joni Mitchell, I can see from both sides now. I see the beauty of stage one simplicity, but I always realize that there is so much more to see. I'm less defensive and much more open to beauty and possibility. I'm okay with not having answers to every question. I'm more open to God and to others. Let me say one thing about this that I failed to say in the last episode, and that is that everybody's spiritual journey is their own spiritual journey. Some people never leave stage one, and that's okay. For those of us that are deconstructing, to see ourselves as special or better or more enlightened, we aren't. We're just on a different spiritual journey. Today, I want to begin a three-part series where we look at three different fundamentals of Christianity and what they might look like in each of these three stages. Today, I want to talk about the Bible, and then in the next episode, I'll talk about how we see God and then finally Jesus. I'm taking much of my thinking from a book I read recently by one of my favorite theologians, Marcus Borg, and his book, The Heart of Christianity. So if you wanted to, you could just skip my podcast and go straight to the book, or you can stick around for some of my thoughts on this subject. My beginnings of movement between stage one and two came in my understanding of the Bible. But stage one for me lasted pretty much until I was in my 50s. With that said, there were times that I would have doubts and questions, but because there was no place to go with those, 
I just put them aside and tried to white knuckle myself on in spite of those doubts and questions. But when I realized there might be another way to look at things, another way of seeing, if you will, the dominoes started to fall. Slowly at first, and then much more quickly, like a snowball going downhill, if you don't mind me mixing the metaphors. In stage one, at least for me, the Bible seemed really clear. I think that's probably true for most people, or at least most people that grew up in an evangelical setting like I did. I bought into and defended the idea that the Bible was without error. If there was something that seemed like an error, then I just didn't understand it properly. I would speak passionately about the authority of Scripture. I believed that everything that you needed to know could be found in the Bible. It's what I was taught as a child in Sunday school. It's what I learned in theological training, and it's what I often taught from the pulpit on Sundays. Marcus Borg speaks of an alternative way of looking at the Bible, and it breaks it down with three adjectives, historical, metaphorical, and sacramental. So let's start with the historical. In stage one, we see everything in the Bible as historical fact. The question of, did this really happen, is always an emphatic yes. Did the Red Sea really part? Yes. Was there really a flood that wiped out the entire planet? Yes. And were there really two mosquitoes on the ark? I guess yes. The answer always is yes. It happened just like it says. Stage two then begins with, I don't know. I'm not too sure about all this. And eventually it gets to the point where it's like, no, that's absolutely impossible. I just can't buy into that. Those first questions seem scary and dangerous because we have been taught that if the Bible isn't historical fact, then we cannot trust anything it says. If it's not all true fact, then none of it is true. But then in stage three, we view the history of the Bible differently. Here's how Marcus Borg has come to terms with it. He says the Bible is the product of two historical communities, ancient Israel and the early Christian movement. And as such, it's a human product, not a divine product. I mean, that's heavy, right, for a lot of us. Let me say that again. It is a human product, not a divine product. It doesn't deny the reality of God, but it sees the Bible as the response of these two ancient communities to God. It speaks of God's involvement in their lives and in their community. It's not God's witness to God, 
but rather the community's witness to God. In other words, the Bible tells us how our spiritual ancestors saw things, not necessarily how God sees things. This is a massive shift in thinking, and certainly for me it took quite a bit of time. But when we see the Bible from this perspective, it makes many of the questions and problems and inconsistencies disappear. Did Jesus really turn water into wine? Maybe, maybe not. Doesn't really matter. Did God really command the destruction of the Amalekites? Well, certainly that's how ancient Israel saw it but maybe not how God saw it. So let me address a couple of the questions that came up for me as I was shifting to this kind of historical thinking. So one of them was like, what about inspiration? Is the Bible inspired or not? Because I always believed it was. In the early part of my stage two journey, if I was honest, I probably would have said, no, I don't think it is. I mean, that's the most honest answer, but it didn't sit well with me. In fact, I don't know if I ever managed to say it out loud like that. I mean, stage one understanding of the Bible in my world was conditioned to the idea of plenary inspiration that every word or at least every idea was inspired by God and thus had the authority of God standing behind it. That's why we preachers love to say, if you don't like what I'm teaching, don't blame me. I didn't say it. God did. That's plenary inspiration. It, it, it sees the Bible as a divine product rather than a human product. Now, if you ask me today, if the Bible is inspired, I would say yes, absolutely. Although I see inspiration differently, the emphasis would be on the people that God inspired rather than the words God inspired. It's about the people who were moved by the experience of the Spirit of God in their lives and then wrote down those experiences the people who sometimes got it right and sometimes got it wrong, the people who were trying to live their lives consistent with their understanding of God that they loved and served. I'm not sure if this is the best way to say this, but maybe instead of saying the Bible is the inspired word of God, I would say the Bible is the stories of the inspired people of God. I love this approach because I don't have to waste time arguing about whether something really happened or not. But that, that, that takes me to my next question. So as I was deconstructing all this, the question became, is the Bible actually true? And again, at this point in my life, I would say emphatically, yes but not true in a factual sense. So let's talk about the Bible as metaphor.
I remember the first time I heard the idea that Genesis 1 and 2 might actually just be metaphor, like they didn't really happen. And it absolutely shook me to the core. No, it just can't be. If Genesis 1 and 2 were not true, then everything falls apart. Everything I believed, everything I gave my life for, it's all out the window. Because that's how most of us see it in stage one. See, we see the idea of metaphor as a negative thing. It's less than the truth. Or in other words, it's a lie. But in a positive sense, metaphor is more than the literal meaning of the language. Metaphorical meaning, I would suggest, is not inferior to literal meaning. It's more than literal meaning. We do this all the time in evangelical preaching. There's a famous phrase that many the evangelical pastor has used at Easter or Good Friday as I have. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I first heard Tony Campolo use it over and over in a sermon, and I just wanted to jump out of my seat. Later, I learned that the first one to come up with the idea, at least as far as I can tell, was an African-American pastor by the name of Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. What a name. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's a message of hope in the midst of despair. It's a message of light in the midst of darkness. It's the message of life in the midst of death. And I'm sure many of you have heard it, but it takes this message of Good Friday and Easter way beyond the literal meaning, and it gives it a more than literal meaning directly into the pain and hope of our own lives. See, I would say that the Bible contains both history and metaphor. In other words, there are stories that actually happen, although maybe not exactly as they're recorded, and there are stories that are purely metaphor. The freeing part is when it doesn't matter, when we no longer have to argue about whether an event happened or not. See, the question is not, did this event really happen or not? The question is, what is the truth in the story? What is the thing behind the thing, if you will? When the question is, did this happen? We are likely to miss the thing behind the thing, which is why the story is there in the first place. Recently, I've come to terms with the fact that the stories of the birth of Jesus in Matthew and Luke are most likely metaphor. It was a hard one for me to come to terms with. But when you read the way that Matthew says it happened, and then you read the way that Luke says it happened, they are radically different. The Apostle Paul, who was actually the first person to write about the Jesus story, said very little about his birth. He said that Jesus was born of a woman. Nothing about that woman being a virgin. 
He doesn't mention a stable or shepherds or a star or wise men. And then there's Mark, which is the first gospel that was written, doesn't include the birth of Jesus at all. Now, we could spend days debating this stuff, but we would miss the beauty and the richness of it all. Was Jesus really born of a virgin? Maybe, maybe not. But whatever happened, it was of God. It was way more normal than just a human thing. There was something divine that was going on here. Was it really a star? Maybe not. But it speaks to Jesus bringing light into the darkness, as John puts it in his gospel. Were there really these wise men that came from the east? Well, maybe, maybe not. But the fact that these were Gentile men clearly speaks to the fact that this light was for all people and not just for the Jews. It speaks of inclusion from the very beginning of the life of Jesus. And what about the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night? True? Maybe, maybe not. It speaks to the fact that this Jesus is for the marginalized, the outsiders, the outcast, the unexpected. And the song that the angels sang, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This speaks directly against the empire of Rome and declares that Jesus is the one who will bring peace, not Rome. Jesus is Lord not Caesar. It speaks to all empire and it speaks truth to power. And what about that weird story where Herod kills all the baby boys? I mean, did that really happen? Well, I don't know if it really happened or not. It doesn't seem to in history, but it clearly links us back to the time of the Pharaoh issuing a similar order that led to the rescue of Moses and ultimately the freedom of the Israelite people. See, the thing behind the thing is that Jesus is the new Moses. Moses 2.0, if you will. The, the one who will bring about a new exodus and liberate God's people from slavery and oppression. It speaks to the fact that empires will not prevail and evil does not have the final word. Man, there's so much more in that Christmas story that could be unpacked or in the Easter story or in the creation story or the flood story and on and on and on. Did it all really happen? I doubt it. Is it all really true? Absolutely. Then finally, Borg sees the Bible as sacramental. Historical, metaphorical, sacramental. And I would add sacramental slash transformational. And this is really important. Theologians speak of the fact that a sacrament is an outward visible sign that functions as a means of grace. 
It's a door to the sacred. It's something that is not divine on the outside, but becomes divine in us. And, and that divine thing in us is always transformational. It always changes things. When we speak of seeing the Bible different historically and understanding the Bible as metaphor, it's about how we see the Bible. But when we speak about Scripture being sacramental, it's the way that God comes to us. It's about God in us. So I read scripture not to see the rules for living or not to understand some theological or doctrinal concepts. I don't read scripture as a letter that God has written to me because it's not. But when we speak of scripture being God-breathed, it's not the words that are God-breathed, it's God's grace breathed into me. Maybe I can wrap all this up with an illustration that I gleaned from Stan Mitchell. Remember how when you were young, you believed in Santa Claus? Or Father Christmas, for those of you that are international. Then you found out that he wasn't real. That he didn't actually exist. Now for some children, it is a complete shock. And it seems to like take the joy out of Christmas. But then, when we become adults, what do we tell our children? Santa is real. So here's the question. Does Santa exist? Nope. But is he real? Absolutely yes. See, the thing behind the thing, love, generosity, joy, singing. That's what's important. And that's why we tell our kids about Santa, because we're able to see it from both sides now. So here's, here's how this works with the Santa illustration. Stage one, Santa is real. Santa eats the cookies I leave out and then leaves me presents and I can't wait for Santa to come. Stage two, Santa is not real. Well, this sucks. Who ate the cookies? I mean, those presents were just really from my parents. How boring. Stage three, we tell our children about Santa Claus. Now, when, the, when it comes to the Bible, it looks something like this. Stage one, I love this book. It tells me everything that I need to know. I believe every word is of God. In fact, it feels like it was written just to me. The Bible is front and center in our lives. We put it on our phones. We carry it with us. We read it every day. Then somewhere along the line, the wheels start to fall off that thinking. Maybe it was a class at university and you heard arguments that you've never heard before that send you into a bit of a crisis of faith. Or maybe a spiritual leader let you down or even abused you. Maybe you came to terms with your sexuality or gender identity and it didn't fit into the norm of the church community you were in. But for whatever reason, you began to doubt and question 
until you are full on in stage two. And it looks like this. This book is terrible. It's misogynistic. It condones slavery. It's full of contradictions. How did I ever buy into this stuff? The app comes off your phone and the Bible goes on a shelf to collect dust. But then somewhere along the way, you begin to see these stories and poems and prophecies and teachings differently. You begin to see them not as a divine product, but as a human product. You see them as the stories of your spiritual ancestors and how they understood God and how they responded to God. You began to understand that their views and actions were very much influenced by the culture around them. And so just because they're misogynistic doesn't mean that God is or that you should be. You begin to let go of the idea that everything in the Bible had to actually happen the way it says. Maybe the stories of creation or Christmas or Easter or the flood or the miracles of Jesus or the stories of the early church are not factual, but it doesn't really matter because there's so much more beauty and truth to see beyond the facts. There is so much to learn from the thing behind the thing. And then you come to stage three. Man, I love this book. Not in the same way I did before, but in a way that is deeper and more meaningful and more beautiful. I don't expect it to be perfect or factual. I don't see every word as God's voice, but when I read it, I know God's voice in me. When I read it, I come face to face with the divine in me. And I can actually see it from both sides now. So wherever you are on this spiritual journey, keep moving forward but give yourself lots of grace. Every question doesn't have to be answered today. Everything doesn't be, need to be tied up with a neat little bow. You don't have to figure all this out by the end of the month. Just journey forward at whatever pace works for you. Don't get bogged down into the muck of other people's ideas or expectations. Just keep moving forward. Next week, we're going to use this same format to talk about God. How we see God has a huge impact on how we live our lives. And so what does God look like as we journey through these three stages of our spiritual quest? I hope you'll join me then. But until next time, Shalom. Shalom.